You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have Mike Prowl on the phone. Mike is responsible for deal sourcing, underwriting, and investor relations at Pecos Capital. And Mike has spent over nine years of real in real estate, including professional roles like banking, real estate debt and equity investment, asset management, property manager. He's the first person that I've gotten a chance to talk to who started his career in real estate. So this is going to be interesting for me. He's also been an active multifamily investor for the past nine years. Mike is a co-founder of Pecos Capital, but before that, he served as an AVP at Citigroup, where he underwrote $50 million in debt and additionally oversaw the Freddie Mac lending process for Citigroup's Litech affordable housing platform. So with all that, Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Mac. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Yeah, definitely a difficult one. Uh, I would say... I think Moose Tracks is probably my favorite. I like every bite's a little bit different. You got like the chocolate chip in there. Got a little bit of vanilla. I don't even know what's all in it. There's just a lot of different flavors and every every bite's a little bit different, which keeps it interesting. But definitely like when you get into the, the deep chocolate bites, those are the those are the best ones. I love it. Do you have a specific brand like Ben & Jerry's or Baskin Robbins or you know, anything are, like that? They're, they're they're all good. Even the, just like the Kroger brand, I think is awesome. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the Ben & Jerry's one's pretty great too. Do you eat yours in a waffle cone or do you, are you a bowl guy? Uh, so usually I'm just buying it from the supermarket, taking it home. So I'm yeah. usually just, just a bowl guy, but you know, can't go wrong with a waffle cone either. There you go. There you go. I actually had some ice cream for lunch today because things were running <laughs> a little bit behind. And as you know, Florida gets really, really hot and I'm in Florida today and I went for a walk outside and I'm like, man, my ice cream would be delicious right now. So treat yourself. Yeah. It's a lunch of champions. <laughs> so tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do? Yeah. So uh, these days I'm looking at a ton of multifamily deals, uh, looking to syndicate deals. I have about four deals under management currently. So I, I do the asset management on that. I'm kind of, you know, small shop. So we're just running everything, you know, from the ground up, but uh, basically overseeing property managers, looking for new deals, you know, looking to raise capital, all that. And then you got started in real estate journey right out of college. Where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah. So I actually even started before that. I was blessed to, uh, my dad was actually a residential broker and he picked up single families and, and duplexes as he saw good deals in, in South Florida. And so I got exposure to that. Although I like to joke that I actually, I hated real estate when I was a kid because Miami gets hit by hurricanes every other summer. Right. So there's always stuff to clean up. So he would drag me along to help, you know, clean up broken branches and, and all that stuff. So that wasn't fun. That was my first exposure to real estate. But once I got to college, I took a elective. Uh, my fi- one of my finance electives was in real estate. I loved it. So I got like a part-time job as a leasing agent, which is part of my property management experience. And so joined the real estate club, did all that kind of stuff and you know, had a great experience. So I decided to double major in it and then just kind of ran from there. Did your dad do all the property management as well down there? Yes. Would take all the calls, do all that stuff, you know, cause he, as a real estate agent, he is a little bit more flexible. He could go meet up for random calls, but yeah, he's uh, for about 30 years, he's been like a very small mom and pop single family duplex investor. So gotcha. I'm trying to, I'm trying to convince him on multifamily to get into larger deals. Cause every, it's easier, you know, and 
you know, there's higher yield and all the, all the advantages that we of course know about. But Why do you think he hasn't taken the jump? Just curious, like what's his, what's his mindset around single family and duplexes and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's stability, you know, it's an, hard to teach an old dog new tricks. So, you know, he's, he's owned them for a while. He's got most of them paid in cash at this point. So he's just kind of cash flowing. He's got enough that yeah. he has a little bit of diversity if one tenant doesn't pay. So he's kind of got that multifamily thing, but it's the small, the smaller stuff. And I think he's, he's kind of a control freak too. So he likes just being the property manager because he knows he can count on himself where is, you know, it, it's hard to, to kind of release control sometimes. So I can be a little like that too. So I know where he's coming from, but at, at a certain point, if you want to scale, if you want to grow, you've got to just put the right people in the right places. Yeah. And I know when we got a chance to meet too, like my single family portfolio was 10 and I was looking to get into multifamily and it's something about that extra comma when you're going to two deals, that's a little bit scary. And the fact that I tell people when you're talking about a hundred thousand dollar house, I mean, there's only so much that can go wrong and you're not going to go bankrupt over a hundred thousand dollars in the long run. But you start throwing a couple commas on there and you make a mistake. It looks bigger, but you jumped straight in. You did you have you ever owned any single family or duplexes or anything like that? I started working for Starwood Property Trust, which is like a mortgage REIT. And so I was doing CMBS there. And so CMBS origination, servicing, investing can, in the B piece. Can you talk real quick about what CMBS is? Yeah. So CMBS is a commercial, it stands for commercial mortgage-backed securities. So when a, let's say a retail loan for a strip center or an office building, you know, someone originates a loan for that, an investment bank will pull all the mortgages together and then sell them to third parties. And so a CMBS, a commercial mortgage-backed security is essentially a bond that's backed by these loans. Yep. So a great way, if you want to be a passive investor to just go buy into securitized loans like that, basically, you get the yield backed by a tangible asset, but you don't have to own the property. You don't appreciate the upside, but you get right. uh, real estate assets. Okay. Yeah. So you, how long did you do that? So I was there for a couple of years. What did you learn from that experience? Because you're the first person I've ever talked to on this platform that's done the financing side and the ownership side and the property management side. And I want to try to get different pieces of that story out of here. So what did you learn from that? What was that experience like? Yeah. I mean, it was a great experience. I learned a ton. You know, I, I rotated through different groups. So I was like a rotational analyst is what they called it. So I, I kind of did, I, I started in surveillance, which was like your thousand foot view, looking at these really large loans and these different deal pools and looking at metrics like debt coverage ratios, LTVs, you know, large tenants in retail, for example, make sure they're paying if they had a, um, you know, had a maturity coming up like a lease maturity you know, talking to the bar and seeing like, you know, what's going on with that? Are they going to resign or are they going to vacate? And what's your plan in place, right? Because, you know, in retail, the rent roll isn't necessarily really granular. You know, you can have three big tenants. If one leaves, there goes 33%. So kind of looking at that, you know, and just surveying these large loans, the big pieces of these pools, right? To make sure that the collateral is in good shape. So did that, did some performing loan stuff. So approving like property management changes, uh, doing loan assumptions, kind of all that. And then the whole time, whenever we got like a new debt, like investment deal, like a B piece, which is where you actually invest in the bonds as, as like our company, uh, we would underwrite loans. So I got exposure to all the different property types. So office, retail, warehouse, multifamily, of course. So it was, it was a great experience. I mean, I learned a ton about just all the different commercial real estate asset classes and decided why I liked multifamily and it's kind of what partially led me to change to, to city. And besides the fact that retail got crushed during 2020, what drew you to multifamily? Were there specific demographics or things out there that you really liked about 
multifamily? As I mentioned earlier, the granular rent roll, I think really provides you, you know, it, I think it's just kind of a, a risk thing where it's just lower risk. If you one tenant moves out, it's really not a big deal if you've got a hundred tenants. So um, just a smaller piece of, of income stream. The financing is really attractive. Um, so I like that, that side of it as well. You know, the syndication piece, it's a little bit, you can do it in retail, of course, you can do it with any, any kind of asset investing really, but kind of all those, those things. And then just, when I went to city, it kind of opened my eyes to, you know, how these investors were, were financing deals and structuring them. And, you know, I just saw a ton of opportunity there. Yeah. So why did you make the move from Starwood to city? Cause with Starwood down, they're in Miami, right? They're in South Florida. Yeah, Starwood was in Miami, which is where I'm from. So I kind of been in, you know, Florida my whole life. I wanted to try something new, and Nashville seemed like a good spot. And city had an opening. And like I said, I always wanted to get into apartments, and so it was kind of the next step. Um, it was low income housing, but uh, it was still still apartments, and you know, it provided me with a really great foundation for for what I do now. Yeah, there's a lot of people moving to move to Music City these days. It sounds like right. That's right. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a great market. It's a super fun town. I lived there for four years. And I know you, you've lived there. You're kind of, are you trying to move back? What? No, I'll be moving back. Uh, we're recording this in May. I'll be moving back in the next month or so. Um, nice. I've been splitting a lot of my time there anyways. Dude, I was there uh, last weekend. It, you wouldn't recognize it. I don't know the last time you've been. <laughs> even if you said last week, you wouldn't recognize it. Downtown yeah. looks remarkably different. And there, yeah, it's it's, just, it's super exciting. There's so much going on. Obviously, you got the music side, but the economy's booming, and there's a ton of development. Like you say, yeah, it's every time you go, there's there's new buildings popping up everywhere. There's new things going, so it's it's a cool town. Yeah. So when you moved to city, you were involved in low income housing. There's a specific program called LIHTC in home in low income housing. Yep. What was your role in LIHTC? What was your role at city? And then I want to well, first of all, let's start with what is it? Yeah. So LIHTC is uh, low income housing tax credits. So as everyone knows, like housing affordability is you know a major issue and and something a lot of politicians are focused on uh, in America today. And so LIHTC is a public private partnership way to address that. So LIHTC tax credits uh, is what they are, and they're allocated to a developer to allow them to build new apartment units or to renovate existing apartment units. And so it it gets pretty complicated in the structure, but you can essentially think of it as as the government um, giving these developers tax credits. The The developer then sends them or sells them to a third party, like a limited partner. And then that gives them the equity to invest in the new project. And it's also financed with debt, very similar to, you know, conventional multifamily as well. So you've got the equity piece from the LIHTC and you've got the debt piece coming from the bank, which is, I was working on the debt piece. Are there specific areas of a town where uh, city governments will focus on? Are there specific developers or there's like, how do they decide what qualifies as a LIHTC property? It's, you know, I didn't work in the developer side, so I know what it looks like kind of from the bank, but essentially you can apply to, I guess, let's take a step back. The national government will allocate tax credits to every state, depending on the population and the needs of the state. And so the local developer or even a national developer will apply to the state government to get allocated the tax credits for a project they have. And so the state government will typically allocate them to the projects that they think are the most worthy are going to serve, you know, the new residents the best, right? So that's kind of how the tax credits get allocated. They come from the national government and then they flow down to the states and then the states allocate them. Okay. So the state of Tennessee might have a billion dollars in tax credit. Nashville gets a hundred million of that. 
I can go apply and say, hey, Nashville, I think I deserve 10 million of that for this property in this area. They'll then look at that, vote on it. And then if I'm approved, I now have a $10 million tax credit to go develop on that property. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically it. That's right. Okay. And then I'm assuming I would go, if I was a developer, to a bank or a high net worth individual that needs a huge tax credit and sell those then to them. And yes. that's the equity down payment portion to go start the development. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. So yeah, the big investors are like banks. Um, you know, there'll be syndicators that will, you know, pool capital and then go invest in the equity, the LIHTC, uh tax credits. Gotcha. So was your role at City underwriting the rest of the equity structure or the rest of the debt structure on properties like that then? Yeah. So uh, Citigroup actually as a bank, you know, they have a big tax liability. So they invest uh, and in to these tax credit, uh, these tax credit deals, uh, but they also finance them. And that was the side I was on. So I was doing underwriting for the debt piece of, of the transaction. Gotcha. And all multifamily there? All multifamily. Yep. So yeah. I did actually, I, I kind of had a, a unique niche where I was in conventional, but I also underwrote my tech deals too. So I kind of got exposure to both. Gotcha. Uh, but everything I did was actually through the agency platform, Freddie, Freddie Mac. So uh, I got exposure to, to the agencies as well when I was there, which has yep. obviously been really helpful with, you know, multifamily since they're one of the biggest lenders in the space. Yeah. First comment I will say is I bet you are really good in Excel. <laughs> the second comment I'll say is help us understand. So you mentioned agency debt and, and Freddie debt. So there's agency debt, non-agency debt. What is agency debt? Let's go down that, that uh, rabbit hole. Yeah, so the two agencies um, are Freddie, or yeah, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Uh, so a lot of people know them as the single family, uh, you know, lenders, but they actually do multifamily as well to try to promote affordable housing. Um, and so either through the conventional side or through uh, the actual LIHTC affordable housing side. And so that, that's where they are. And they're, as I mentioned, they're a big multifamily uh, debt um, lender as well. Yeah. So Freddie and Fannie are backed by the government. So essentially they guarantee if city underwrites a deal or finances a deal and somebody defaults on it, then Fannie and Freddie is really, the government is really the one holding the bag. Is that, is that right? Yeah, sort of. So the way it works is they'll, we'll underwrite the deal and then we'll give it to Freddie and they'll review it. And essentially they'll commit to purchasing that security from us within usually it's around 45 days after we originate the loan. So our, our intention with the, you know, from day one is to originate the loan and sell it to Freddie. And then Freddie actually packages those loans up similar to the commercial mortgage backed securities and they sell them to investors and they call them K deals. Um, gotcha. So we'll originate the loan, sell it to Freddie and then Freddie will then go ahead and sell it to another investor. So if you went to Freddie in this situation, you were trying to underwrite a deal and they said they would not commit to buying it. What, what would your options be as, a, as an underwriter at City? You make it work for their box, basically, because when you sign up a deal with Freddie, you know, they'll pre-screen it. So we'll, the first step is, you know, the banker will say, hey, I got this new client. They're looking to, let's just say, get a $5 million loan. So We'll do our initial underwriting, pre-screen it with Freddie. We'll get the initial like, yeah, you're good to go, you know, do the deal. And then, so we'll go through the whole underwriting process, collecting third parties, documents like the appraisal, the P&A, which is the physical needs assessment, environmental report. We'll look at, you know, updated rent rolls, T12, financials, all that stuff, get all the information, put it into a package and then deliver it to Freddie. 
And then they'll have two weeks to review it, ask us any questions. And then we'll basically close within a week after they approve it. If it gets pre-screened and approved and then things change, you can cut the loan. You know, usually if you get it pre-screened approved, they're not going to completely like, unless something huge, like a huge red flag comes up. Usually you've taken enough look at it to be like, we can do this deal as long as like, you know, there wasn't a laundry that spilled, you know, hazardous waste everywhere. And, you know, so those kinds of things can kill a deal, but usually it'll, it'll land somewhere and, you know, plus minus five, 10%. Um, yep. loan amount range. So for our listeners out there, that's what they call agency debt. Whenever you hear in multifamily that they're going to go get agency debt, that's what agency debt is. What is non-agency debt? So non-agency debt's pretty much everything else. So uh, bank, a recourse bank loan would be agency debt. So we did some of that at City 2, mostly for the construction piece. So we'll, you know, you can think of a construction loan to a permanent loan. So the construction loan will be maybe two years for the construction phase. And then once the property is finished and leased up, there'll be a permanent loan that will take that out. And oftentimes that permanent loan was an agency loan, but the agencies don't lend to construction. So typically that goes through a bank. But yeah, so anything else would be CMBS. That's not agency. Um, anything that's not a Freddie or Fannie loan is essentially non-agency. Gotcha. And then you also hear in underwriting multifamily and million dollar apartment complexes and things like that, bridge loans and MES loans. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? Yeah. So bridge loans are sort of like a construction loan. Oftentimes uh, it'll be a short-term loan, two to three years, maybe with you know an extension or something. And the idea is there's some sort of value add or you know construction component to it. So they'll typically lend you most of the purchase price and then they'll lend you some of the construction costs too. Um, that'll be built into the loan. And, and so that's what a bridge loan is. It's, it's kind of, you can think of it as a bridge from the sale to your permanent financing. It's not really a permanent financing loan. It's more of a, a bridge to that, just so you can improve the property. So a, a MES loan would be, if you have, let's say a 75% loan, that's your first mortgage, the MES loan will be on top of that. So it might bring you up to 85 or 90% leverage. Usually it's like a higher interest rate, but it's usually part of the permanent loan financing so it's gotcha. a different, just a, just a, a higher up uh, part of the capital stack when you're looking at ec- equity, then you, you'll have your MES debt and then you'll have your permanent finance. Gotcha. So whenever you said, hey, we went back to Franny, Fanny and or Freddie, and they said, uh, actually, we can only underwrite 65% of this instead of 70, that MES debt would be that extra seven or 5%. You would go grab that, right? Yeah. Although they have restrictions on... Mes how much so, yeah yeah how much you can do so they'll have to approve that and it can be hard to get freddie to approve that they usually want to be the sole lender similar to mes you can put on supplemental financing which is say you you buy a property and then in three years you improve the value you double the value or something you can get supplemental financing on top of that so you increase your leverage and pull equity out typically gotcha so i mentioned that you're probably really good in excel what did you learn about underwriting through all of this? Yeah. I mean, even, even more than in Excel, I mean, you know, a lot of the models, you know, can be pretty well built out. So you don't have to necessarily be, you know, coding and putting in new formulas and, and, and pulling that kind of stuff, you know, to underwrite these deals. But I mean, just the mechanics, like how to look at, you know, a a lender is very conservative, right? So I got kind of that, that kind of crash course on how to underwrite properties, what things to look out for, like property taxes, especially if you're in like Texas or somewhere where they can double on a sale. So how to look at that, you know, how to look at insurance, how to make sure, you know, look at utilities, 
you know, all those different components, all the different line item expenses, how to underwrite, you know, income to, to make sure you're not assuming too much rent growth, all those different components. Uh, I mean, I think that was what I learned the most when I was there, all the, just the different pitfalls that can happen in multifamily investing. So when you've got, you know, the big corporation you're working for, they're, as, as you can imagine, they're, you know, risk averse. They want to make sure they've dotted their eyes and crossed their T's. So, it was just, it was great having, having that knowledge uh, when I'm looking at properties, you know, myself, you know, to make sure I'm not missing anything or, you know, you know, just not double checking everything. Yeah. The last I, thing you want to do is have a big like environmental issue or, you know, some other thing that, you know, a seasoned investor would find, but you don't. Yeah. I think you mentioned a couple of things there. One property tax, right. And Texas, for instance, the property taxes get reassessed, I think on the sale of a property. So, I mean, you talk about double, yeah, they can absolutely skyrocket through the roof. Also looking to make sure your rent growth assumptions meet the target demographics of the five mile radius, three mile radius, et cetera, is interesting. I want to ask you this question on insurance. I have a assumption or a prediction that places like Houston, Miami, Tampa, uh, New Orleans, places like that are going to see massive insurance cost increases over the next five to 10 years. Um, so as a general rule, I pass on deals that are on, along a coast because of that, whether that be hurricanes or rising sea levels or things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Or, or just give me your thoughts on that. I, I'm with you 100%. I'm definitely like, I, and I think you could see you know, migration because of that. So there might be a, a migration from the coast inward over the next several years, depending on how bad things can get. I watched a webinar actually not that long ago, just about that subject. So it's, it's funny you brought that up, but I, I agree completely. And, you know, insurance, you know, even in inland, even inland places in Texas is, is going crazy. I know. So, um, you know, it just depends, but it's, uh, I agree hundred percent. And it's something that I definitely look at. And it's definitely, if you, if you are going to invest in those places, I would say don't grow your insurance at the same rate you grow your other expenses. You probably want to grow that at, you know, double the rate, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to escalate quicker than 2%. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think, look, I'm not here to be a scientist. I don't know the scientist or anything like that. I, I'm not a scientist, but at the end of the day, it just feels like hurricanes are getting worse they're getting harder, like categories are elevating. There are more of them in a year. Tornadoes and things like that are getting worse. So if you're investing in Oklahoma, Arkansas, North Texas, tornadoes, you got to watch out for and anything along the coast, you got to watch for sea levels and hurricanes and things like that. Just be prepared for that in your underwriting from an insurance standpoint. Yep, absolutely. Um, so I want to now switch in the fact that when we met, you had just made the plunge into being a full-time real estate investor right in the middle of COVID. Um, talk to me about, first off, why did you make that move uh, when you were already working in the real estate industry? Yeah. So, and this kind of ties into a question you asked before, but I didn't really fully answer. So you asked if I'd ever been in like smaller multifamily, single family duplexes. So my first job when I worked at, at Starwood um, allowed me to, to buy a duplex when I was in Miami. And so that was like my first like personal, like direct investment where I was managing, overseeing everything. Um, so that's kind of how I got my first like start there. Um, and so I kind of always, I, you know, I always looked at, you know, these deals we were financing and I just like, I wanted to be on the other side of the table, right? You know, I didn't want to be on the debt side. I wanted to be on the equity eventually. The debt side was great. I learned a ton, you know, I, it was super valuable for me and it, it proves to be every day, you know, cause like a couple months ago, I closed my first uh, Freddie, Freddie deal 
like, you know, from the ownership side. And so like, I knew everything that was coming before they asked me for it. I knew every form, you know, I knew exactly how they wanted them filled out. So it just made it for a, a really smooth process. And I knew how they would size loan, all of that. But so I kind of always had that in mind. So I started with a duplex. I bought a condo um, when I was in Nashville. And then I found like a really interesting opportunity to house hack. So I rented out the condo, bought the fourplex. And while I was living there, moved around to different units and, and uh, did renovations. And it was, a, it was a crazy six months because I was living in multiple different units at different times. But it was an awesome experience. I learned a ton about it. And I did it all while I was, you know, working in banking, which would made for very, very long days and weeks. But, um, but, you know, since I had that experience, I, I knew I always wanted to get into, you know, the equity side. So um, in 2019, I, I bought my first 16 unit deal with a partner. It was actually my brother. And so that was kind of my start. I did that before I quit. And then I basically waited till I got my, my bonus and right after I got my bonus, I put in my two weeks to, to, to start. So that was in, I guess, February of 2020. So, you know, maybe a month before everything hit and went crazy. And so I, I remember I was, I, you know, I moved around a lot for, for jobs and for, you know, real estate opportunities. So I moved to New Mexico to go full-time investing, you know, here locally. And, um, you know, I, I remember driving across the country in my moving van and just like looking at new updates on my phone or hearing about new things. I'm like, oh no, like I literally am just taking this plunge and like half the country is shutting down. And so it was, it was very nerve wracking to say the least. I think it's so interesting that you were born and raised in Miami and then now you're going to New Mexico, right? As it feels like the world is coming down around you. Um, how did, how did you kind of get through that from a mindset standpoint? Like we're, obviously that's got to be a scary and, and uncertain time. How were you able to kind of push through that and just keep going down this path? Uh, you know, just uh, a lot of, a lot of prayer and hope and, you know, just faith that I had, you know, taken the right steps to make it successful, even if something happened. So one of the reasons we actually were looking at New Mexico was because it hadn't seen the crazy price appreciation in the last decade that, a lot of the coastal markets have seen, yeah. hadn't seen crazy rent growth, hadn't seen, you know, crazy appreciation. So we thought there was an opportunity there at the end of a cycle. If you're not in a super highly inflated, there's less room to fall. Right. So that was kind of the thought. We also did geographical, like kind of arbitrage where, you know, every, every city around Albuquerque um, in the Sun Belt has kind of done really, really well. And so we figured at some point there's going to be an influx of jobs because of just the cost of living here is so much cheaper than Denver and Phoenix and anywhere else, Reno, you know, Nevada, everywhere, Salt Lake City. It, it's just, it's gotten really expensive and has a lot of the same, you know, characteristics. So that's kind of how we, we picked the market. And so, you know, it actually played out in COVID uh, where we didn't really see much of, of, you know, price decline at all here. In fact, rents have gone up 8% in the last year. You know, it's kind of had that small city, you know, influx from larger cities, uh, just cost of living. If people can work remotely, why pay, you know, a million dollars for a house when you can buy the same thing for 250 or 300 or here or whatever it is. So you moved to New Mexico, you started growing your portfolio. Um, I think before we were talking, you mentioned that everything up to this point had been JV. How did you, so joint venture, you weren't uh, syndicating deals and taking down different funds and things like that. How did you go about finding partners for your JVs? Yeah. So as I mentioned, the, the first deal I did with 16 unit here was with my brother. 
So we pooled our funds together to buy that. That was a really unique mom and pop deal. Um, it ended up being a, a great purchase for us. Uh, but the idea was, you know, to go into business together. My brother's kind of like a serial entrepreneur. So, you know, he always wants to start stuff, but he doesn't necessarily finish it. So, you know, I've had to, since, uh, you know, since we kind of moved out here, he's moved on to, he's gotten really into the crypto space. So I've had to find new partners. So now, uh, you know, to find the, my latest partners with uh, Pecos Capital, um, I did a lot of networking uh, online through COVID. And so I went to an event and, you know, just shaking hands, meeting people. It's not really shaking. This is all over yeah. online at this point. So, uh, but just meeting people and, you know, trying to, you know, see who aligns the best with what we're, we're all looking for. And so we can have a, you know, good partnership for the future. Yeah. Were you looking for like specific skill sets or were you looking with person, people you like gel with, or are there any tips that you could provide there on if I meet someone at a networking event, how do I know if they'd be a good partner? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just getting to know them, having a lot of conversations, looking at deals, you know, seeing if your interests, you know, align there. I know for me, I'm not the most, like I'm a detail oriented because you have to be but that's not my strong suit and like organization is my strong suit. So one of my partners owns his own business and is extremely organized and in detail. So like that is something that I lack that, you know, that he has. And so it really helps create a more, you know, synergistic relationship. So, I mean, to me, I think looking to meet people that have the qualities that you don't have yourself, you know, where you can focus on, what you're strong at and they can bring, you know, that other piece to the table. I think that's super important. So really it's just having to, you have to get to know people, probably not jumping into it too soon. Um, you know, before you really know a lot about them and, you know, we like, for example, like we ran background checks on each other, you know, we kind of like looked at multiple deals together. We had calls at a certain point, it got to be two to three calls a day. You know, we were just talking about deals, bouncing ideas off each other. So I think you just want to make sure everyone has the same level of, uh, you know, dedication that you have to just make sure you're with partners that, you know, have the same mindset. Yeah. So you bought the 16 unit, you found new partners to grow your business. What does your portfolio look like today? Yeah. So now uh, I have four multifamily properties, larger than four units. I still have that fourplex, but I actually sold the duplex to transition into a larger deal. So we have four deals currently, um, the 16 unit here in Albuquerque, a uh, 48 unit out here. And then with my new partners, we have an 83 unit and a 48 unit, which is actually in Temple, Texas. So the other three properties are all in Albuquerque and then we have the one property in Temple, Texas. Nice. And are you, are you all doing all the property management and house right now? No. So uh, I started, I started when I first moved out to Albuquerque, we started with that, with the 16 unit and the 48 unit. We started with onsite, just, I was working in the office every day, which was a, both a, an awesome and terrible experience. Just like, it's so it's, it's a lot more work than you think. So I was expecting 15, 20 hours, especially during COVID. Right. Cause like there's people not paying, there's just so many things going on. It's, it was a great crash course in property management going through COVID and that being like your first, like where I'm like running the ship. Cause I'd worked in property management before, but I wasn't like the sole person at the property. So it was a great experience, but to, in order to scale, you know, you got to figure out what, where your time is most valuable. And so um, on this, on the 83 unit and the 48 unit, we started with a, a property management team in place, like a third party. 
And then I've also transitioned the 16 and the 48 unit to the same property manager here in Albuquerque. So three of our properties are with uh, the same property management group here. And then we have a, a different property manager for our Texas asset. Gotcha. So what's next for you all? What kind of deals are you looking at? What areas are you looking at? Um, tell us a little bit about what's next for you. We're looking primarily in Texas and New Mexico. So we're looking for typically B and C value out assets. Uh, looking for primarily over 50 units just to have a little bit more scale. It makes the asset management and property management a little bit easier. If you can have someone on site, even if it's not full-time, at least part-time, you can share them with another property. So that's kind of what we're looking at now and looking to take the next step. You know, I've done all these deals have been through JV. So, you know, pooling funds together with others and, and doing it that way. But the next step is syndication for sure. And, uh, you know, raising capital from a ton of different, you know, crowdfunding, ton of different uh individual investors as limited partners. Are there any uh, specific spots in Texas you're looking for in New Mexico? I know Albuquerque, obviously, but any specific spots you're honed in on? Yeah. So looking in New Mexico, looking at Albuquerque and Santa Fe, love the the growth profile that we're, we're starting to see in those cities. And then in Texas, I'm looking all the way from Dallas down to San Antonio. Um, I really like a lot of the smaller markets, you know, we'll call them secondary markets on like the I-35 corridor. There's a ton of growth um, potential there, you know, especially as if, if people can work remotely being maybe a little bit outside a city, you know, hour, you know, 45 minutes or something, you know, they can have that quality of life, slower pace, lower cost of living, of course, but you know, also still have access to the city on the weekends. hundred percent. It might not be in my lifetime, but I feel like towards the end of my life, you'll start seeing that Dallas will grow down to Waco. Waco will grow down to Austin and Austin will grow down to San Antonio. In 100, 150 years, you won't even know when you're in one town or the other. I just feel like it'll be all packed on that I-35 corridor. So if you can go in and gobble up properties now and play the long game and just hold them, I think you're going to be in a great spot. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Sure. So I, let's change uh, transition here to our last five questions. We're calling these the five toppings. Uh, the first one is, what is your favorite book? I'm actually not a huge reader. Um, I'll read occasionally, you know, for, for pleasure, but um, I think my, my, the best medium is, is podcast. So I, I would say my favorite podcast is probably the old capital one, just a ton of knowledge there. And I've, I've gone back and when I was, I think the three to six months leading up to me quitting uh, Citigroup, I was listening to like multiple of their podcasts a day. I was going back to like three or four years, 2017, you know, listening to the old ones back then. It was very interesting hearing the different, uh, how the market had kind of changed throughout the years. But that's probably one of my biggest uh, podcasts that I definitely love to listen to. Uh, obviously love this podcast. It's, uh, I love the people you've had on. It's been really informative and, and fun, to, fun to hear you, hear you run yeah. I'll, I'll give you a call out. You turn me on to the old capital podcast. And if you really want to get deep into the financing of multifamily and, and properties, they're, they're really, really solid. So I appreciate that recommendation. Uh, on your podcast, do you, what speed do you listen to them on? So I actually listen to them just a normal speed. Do you, do you speed them up? I can't listen to things on normal speed anymore. I don't know. Like me, especially everybody in this seat hates hearing their own voice. I, I'm convinced that no one likes the sound of their own voice. But yeah. me on 2X, I'm like, oh, I can handle that. That's not too bad. So <laughs> I listen to everything on like 2X now. Okay. I've, I've tried to listen at like one and a quarter, but I feel like if I listen to it faster than that, I'm not like really soaking in. So I, you know, yeah. I listen to it about yeah. normal speed typically. I believe that the person you'll be in 10 years is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day. What is something that you do every day? 
the thing that I definitely do every day out of necessity is I, I wake up in the morning and usually do some summer of exercise and stretch. It kind of just gets me ready for the day. And I've from sitting at a desk, being a banker, sitting long, long hours, I've, I've had like different mus- muscular issues. So the stretching really releases that and, and helps with the pain and everything. But it also mentally just, I feel like prepares you, you can kind of focus on what you want to do. And it's just a good way to, to start your day slow. And then you can ease into the, you know, the full swing of things. 100%. I started uh, stretching in the mornings, like October of 2020. Mm-hmm. Every single day, every single morning now, there's like a seven to 12 minute routine that I go through. And it's the best thing I've ever done. Like my injuries from my running have gone away. I feel better. I'm healthier. Like it just, and it wakes me up more than anything. Yeah. Like just moving your body wakes you up. So uh, I'm the first person to call that out, but I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, the third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I would say it's probably been, I think my dad told me a while ago, never to rush into anything, like kind of always, you know, look at things as a whole. And I think that's been something that has, has really helped me. Like I didn't rush into, you know, I I spent six, six and a half years, whatever it was in banking. And so that really provided me like a a really good kind of template to start with. And, you know, I was able to save up, you know, banking's a, a higher paid industry. I was able to save up money and allow it to, to invest and, so I think that's probably been one of the, the best pieces of advice I've ever received is just don't, not rushing into it, making sure you've got, you know, everything set and straight before you get off and running. Yeah. And the thing I'll pull from that is like you were, like you said, you were building a template, you were building a skill set, you were building a foundation. I think so many people don't realize the job you currently have, if you want to move away from that, at least take the skills that you're getting from that job and absorb them and build them as much as possible before you go on to the next thing. So I love that part of that. What's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Probably just taking the plunge and, and quitting my job. Like it, it's, it's not easy, like, especially when you get into that mindset. I, I got into that mindset where I was like, you know, especially through house hacking, I was, I was doing, you know, pretty well my job. I was, you know, getting promotions, you know, every, you know, two years or whatever. So my salary kept increasing and I was kind of getting fairly comfortable where I was house hacking, like my mortgage was being paid by, you know, my residents that were living there in the fourplex. So I was basically, I was able to save a ton of money. And, and so it was, it was hard when you've got that such a consistent paycheck and such a good job, you know, it's, it's tough to take that plunge. So I'm, I'm proud that I just did it and it, it's worked out. It's been a blessing, even though COVID happened, you know, it, it, it actually created some opportunity. Um, you know, we got a great deal on the 48 unit because of that. Um, you know, we got, you know, able to have the negotiation, you know, from that perspective. So I think that's what I'm proud of is just taking the plunge and, and hopefully continuing to progress in my career. Yeah. And you're so still so, so early. I mean, if you're saying that, you know, 18 months afterwards, I can't imagine what you're going to say 18 years from now. So yeah. uh, kudos on that. Um, the last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah, that's a great question. Dead or alive. Uh, you know, it's going to be cliche. You know, I'm, I'm Catholic. So I think Jesus would probably be who I'd like to, you know, sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with the most for sure. Um, but, you know, just, just to, just to pick a brain and just be around someone like that, obviously, you know, it's uh, I think that it would just be incredible and one of the best experiences living, maybe, maybe the Pope would be, you know, another one that you, I mean, you just learn so much. There's so much goodness um, from, from those individuals and, and God. And so I think that would be just an incredible experience and something that would, you know, be very beneficial for me. Have you ever been to the Vatican? I have not. I haven't been to Italy. It's a, it's a dream. 
the uh, last time I was there, I got to see the sun rise against the Vatican and the sun rising, hitting that stone is by far one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And as I was walking out, I had some of the, like the best gelato uh, in a cone uh, <laughs> as I was walking through the city of Rome. And it was an experience I'll never forget. So it's funny that you said that and how we're talking about ice cream. The last thing is, Mike, this has been super helpful. I really, really appreciate the stuff around the MES debt, the bridge debt, and the uh, uh, LIHTC and all that kind of stuff. You, you really helped me actually learn a ton there. I've heard a lot of these terms before, but to hear kind of what banks are looking for in the explanation, super valuable. If our listeners wanted to learn more about you or reach out, what, what where's the best place we can send them? Yeah, so um, you can always go to Pecos Capital. It's P-E-C-O-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Uh, so you can go there and um, you can fill out, you know, the investor uh, form that we have there. Or if you want to just reach out to me directly, just about anything we discussed here or anything else, it's uh, Mike at PecosCapital.com. So I'm sure it'll be in the show notes, but uh, that's probably the most direct way to reach me. Perfect. Well, we appreciate your time and uh, look forward to hearing about your next deal. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.